On April 14, 1865, at 10 o'clock p.m., George Atzerott walked into the bar at the Kirkwood Hotel and ordered a drink. He had a lot on his mind, and he hoped the alcohol would calm his nerves. Atzerott had checked into his room that morning with a goal in mind, to murder the vice president, Andrew Johnson, who was staying at the same hotel. But Atzerott wasn't a killer. He couldn't carry out his orders without a little liquid courage. Atzerott waved down the bartender and asked if he'd seen Vice President Johnson that night. The bartender brushed off the question and went back to work. Atzerott would have to figure it out on his own, which he fully intended to do as soon as he finished just one more drink. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations on the ParCast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second of three episodes on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. In this episode, we'll discuss the simultaneous attempts on Lincoln, his Vice President Andrew Johnson, and the Secretary of State William Seward on the night of April 14, 1865. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. On April 19, 1865, the Philadelphia Inquirer published a letter written by John Wilkes Booth addressed to whom it may concern. Booth had most likely written the letter in November of 1864 in the midst of his attempts to kidnap Abraham Lincoln. He left it in the safe of his sister's home in case the plans went awry. The letter described Booth's belief that Abraham Lincoln and the Union States as a whole, were traitors who had abandoned the ideals of the United States. Booth wrote, quote, I love justice more than I do a country that disowns it. More than fame and wealth, my love as things stand to this day is for the South alone. Nor do I deem it a dishonor in attempting to make for her a prisoner of this man, to whom she owes so much of misery. End quote. Booth's sister and brother-in-law didn't open the letter until months later in mid-April of 1865. If they had read the letter sooner, they might have prevented a tragedy. After a year of failed kidnapping attempts, John Wilkes Booth wanted Abraham Lincoln dead. The Civil War had just concluded, leaving the South in disarray. It was especially difficult for Booth, who lost friends in the war including John Yates Bell, who was executed on Lincoln's orders. The Confederate government had evacuated their capital, Richmond, Virginia, less than two weeks earlier on April 2nd, and General Lee had surrendered at Appomattox on April 9th. But Booth didn't think it was too late to turn the tide. 
He wanted to destroy the Union government and throw the northern states into chaos so the South could rise again. Booth turned to his trusted confidants, George Atzerodt, Lewis Powell, and David Harold. Earlier that spring, they had conspired with him to kidnap President Lincoln. Now, the four men would target three key members of the Union government, the president, the vice president, and the secretary of state. They would all strike at the same time, 10 p.m. on Friday, April 14th. In a single hour, they would destabilize the Union for good and flee before they could be captured. On April 14th, 1865, Abraham Lincoln woke up at 7 a.m. as usual. The morning was warm and Lincoln was in an excellent mood. The Union's victory in the Civil War was still fresh and while Lincoln had a lot of work ahead of him, he was optimistic about the new direction for his presidency. Lincoln worked through the morning. Over breakfast, he and his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, discussed their evening plans. They had tickets to two different plays that night, but Mary would rather attend the show at Ford's Theater, Our American Cousin. Lincoln agreed, and Mary invited General Ulysses S. Grant and his wife to join them. Even before Grant could respond, the theater's manager, James Ford, had placed an advertisement in the daily papers announcing that Lincoln and Grant would attend the show that evening. He'd spoken a little too soon. Grant later had to decline the invitation, and the Lincolns opted to invite Sergeant Henry Rathbone and his fiancée, Clara Harris, instead. When John Wilkes Booth picked up the paper, it confirmed what he'd been planning for. After a year of near misses, his plan to ambush Lincoln at Ford's Theater would finally come to fruition. At 11 a.m., Lincoln attended a cabinet meeting. The discussion covered the reconstruction of the South, which had surrendered just days earlier. During the war, Union General William Tecumseh Sherman employed a new tactic known as total warfare. He reasoned that if he demoralized the Southern public through non-battlefield tactics, like burning crops and stealing supplies from civilians, he could push them to end the fighting earlier. Sherman's tactics decimated the South, and with the abolition of slavery, it would be very difficult for their economy to recover. In addition to reintegrating the nation, Lincoln now also had to rebuild the South's infrastructure from scratch. By two o'clock in the afternoon, the cabinet meeting concluded. With the bulk of the day's work complete, conversation turned to Lincoln's evening plans. Ward Lamone, Lincoln's usual bodyguard, informed Lincoln that he would be unavailable that night. He also warned Lincoln that since the newspapers had already reported on his plans to attend the theater, he would be in unusual danger, as any potential attacker would know exactly where to find him. The Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, echoed Lamone's concerns. Lincoln replied that he had full confidence in his bodyguards. He wouldn't change his plans. After the cabinet meeting, Mary Todd and Abraham Lincoln took a carriage ride through Washington, D.C. to enjoy a pleasant day. Despite the Secretary of War's concerns, they traveled without a bodyguard. At some point during the day, John F. Coyle, the editor of a newspaper called the National Intelligencer, was at the market. He was surprised to see his friend, John Wilkes Booth, approach him on horseback. Booth handed Coyle a sealed envelope and said, 
If you hear of me in 24 hours, publish this. If you do not hear of me in that time, destroy this. He rode away without any further explanation. At 6 p.m., Lincoln met with Illinois Governor Richard Oglesby and Union General Isham Haney at the White House. The men drank together, and Lincoln read aloud from one of his favorite books, Phoenixiana, by George H. Derby. At around the same time, John Wilkes Booth went to Ford's Theater. Booth was a regular performer at the theater. He had even been having his mail delivered there. So nobody questioned him when he entered through the front doors and walked the path to President Lincoln's private box. The box was decorated with bunting and flags, yet another confirmation that Lincoln would attend the theater that night. While he was unattended, Booth drilled a peephole through the door to the box. He also pried a loose wooden slat off the wall to use as a door jam. He didn't want anyone entering Lincoln's box who might be able to stop the assassination or save the president. Booth tested it and confirmed that the slat could effectively force the door closed, then returned the slat to the wall so no one would notice and repair it before the performance that evening. After Booth left the theater, he met with George Atcherot, Lewis Powell, and David Harold one final time at a boarding house called the Herndon House. He confirmed that everyone understood their role in the coming attempted assassinations. Lewis Powell was tasked with killing the bedridden Secretary of State, William Seward. Harold would accompany him and help guide Powell to the rally point Booth had selected, a tavern in D.C. owned by their friend's mother, Mary Surratt. George Atzerodt was responsible for killing Vice President Andrew Johnson. Whether or not he actually agreed to this task is up for debate. But Booth left the meeting confident that Atzerodt would follow through. Across the Capitol, Lincoln said goodbye to his friends Haney and Oglesby. He had dinner with his family, then had a brief meeting with the Speaker of the House, Schuyler Colfax. By the time their meeting concluded at 8 p.m., the Lincolns were already late to the theater. Mary Todd wanted to just skip the play. They'd already missed the beginning, and she had a headache anyway. But Lincoln wanted to go out. It had been a stressful week, to put it lightly, and he thought seeing a show would be a good way for the two of them to relax. And since their plans had already made the papers, he didn't want to disappoint the people who'd come all the way to the theater to see him. Before the Lincolns could depart, Congressman George Ashman arrived at the White House and asked to see the president. Lincoln told him he was on his way out, but he promised to meet him the next morning at 9 o'clock. The Lincolns finally left the White House at 8.05 p.m., the president dressed in a black wool coat and gloves. While the day had been warm, the night was cool and foggy. Their trip to Ford's theater took about half an hour by horse-drawn carriage. When the Lincolns arrived a little after 8.30, the actors interrupted their performance so the audience could give Lincoln a standing ovation. Lincoln had been unpopular for much of his presidency, but with the Union victory, the tide was changing, at least in the North. After the applause concluded, the Lincolns settled into their seats and the play resumed. Lincoln was in high spirits. He never imagined that he wouldn't live to see the end of the play. Coming up, we'll discuss the death of President Abraham Lincoln and the other two assassination attempts that Booth's collaborators planned that night. Now, back to the story. 
On April 14, 1865, George Atzerodt traveled to Washington, D.C. and checked into the Kirkwood Hotel, the same hotel where Vice President Andrew Johnson was staying. He'd been given orders to kill the Vice President at precisely 10 p.m. When the moment arrived, Atzerodt went to the hotel bar. It was a good vantage point to watch the comings and goings, and he needed a drink to calm his nerves. One hour later, Atzerodt was still at the bar, now quite inebriated. The only effort he had made towards his task was asking the bartender if he knew of Johnson's whereabouts. The bartender didn't answer the question. Atzerodt eventually left the bar without making any attempt to track down Johnson. Lewis Powell was more proactive in his task. His target, Secretary of State William Seward, had been in a carriage accident nine days earlier and was now confined to his bed to recover. At 10.30 p.m., Powell arrived at Seward's home along with another collaborator, David Harold. Harold wouldn't be involved in the actual assassination attempt. He would wait outside, then guide Powell to the rendezvous point at Mary Surratt's tavern since Powell didn't know the way. Seward's servant, William Bell, opened the door. When Powell asked to be let inside, Bell informed him that Seward wasn't taking any visitors. Powell claimed he'd been sent by Seward's doctor to deliver medicine. Bell didn't believe him. When Powell realized he wasn't going to convince the servant to let him inside, he simply pushed his way in and darted up the stairs. On his way up, he ran into Seward's son, Frederick, who insisted that his father wasn't taking any visitors. Powell repeated his story about delivering medicine, and once again, it didn't work. A noisy argument broke out. Upstairs, Seward's daughter, Fanny, was sitting at his bedside when she heard the commotion. She stepped into the hallway to investigate. When she opened the door, Powell peered in and saw Seward lying in bed. He gave up the illusion of being a messenger, pulled out his gun, and fired at Frederick. Luckily for Frederick, the gun misfired. Instead, Powell struck Frederick in the head with the gun, fracturing his skull. Another one of Seward's sons, Augustus, stepped into the hallway. Augustus wrestled Powell to the ground, but Powell stabbed him seven times, then ran into William Seward's room. Seward was attended by a nurse and a bodyguard. Before either of them could stop him, Powell stabbed Seward in the neck and chest. Yet another of Seward's sons, William Seward Jr., ran into the room and Powell stabbed him as well. With his mission complete, Powell ran out of the house. On his way out, a State Department messenger, Emmerich Hansel, tried to stop Powell. Before their brief struggle, Powell stabbed him as well. In a matter of minutes, Powell had injured five people, including the Secretary of State. But during the noisy struggle, David Harold panicked and fled. When Powell came outside, he realized he had no guide to show him the way to Surratt's tavern. Without any specific destination in mind, he rode away into the night. While Powell was stabbing the entire Seward family, another deadly drama played out at Ford's Theater. Shortly after the Lincolns arrived at the theater, their bodyguard, John Parker, went off duty. He'd only been hired to watch Lincoln's box for the arrival and departure, so for the remainder of the play, he'd be at the Star Saloon down the street. At 9.30 p.m., John Wilkes Booth arrived at an alleyway outside the theater. 
he spotted his friend, Edmund Spangler, outside, and he asked Spangler to watch his horse while he went into the theater. Spangler agreed. Booth knew that once he jammed closed the door to the president's box, he would only be able to escape by jumping onto the stage and running out a back door. He trusted that Spangler would have his horse ready and waiting there so he could make a quick getaway. However, the only way to enter Lincoln's box in the first place was from the theater's front door, as there was no direct path from backstage to Lincoln's box. Booth didn't want to raise Spangler's suspicion by leaving a horse at the back door and then walking out the theater's front door just a couple minutes later. So, once he was backstage, he climbed through a trapdoor, crossed underneath the stage, and exited out another door to a back alleyway. Once Booth was outside again, it was still a little too early to re-enter and put the plan in motion, so he walked to the nearby Star Saloon for a drink. He downed a whiskey and water. Booth had never killed a man before, and he needed a drink to fortify his nerves. Lincoln's off-duty bodyguard, John Parker, was still at the same tavern. He had no idea the actor across the bar was about to kill the man he'd been sworn to protect. Booth returned to Ford's theater shortly after 10. He walked in through the front door and crept through the theater, making note of the large crowd. The show was entirely sold out. Booth wandered to the small vestibule between the hallway and Lincoln's box. He slid the jam over the vestibule door so it couldn't be opened from the outside. Then he peered through the peephole he'd drilled earlier. Abraham Lincoln was seated with his back to the door. He was only two feet away from Booth. Booth drew his gun. He pushed open the door to the box, careful not to make a sound. Lincoln was too enthralled in the play to even notice. Booth knew the play well. A particularly funny line was coming up, and he knew the sound of the audience's laughter would cover up the gunfire. On stage, a character named Asa said, well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, old gal, you sockdologizing old man-trap. The audience burst into laughter. At that moment, Booth pulled the trigger. Even in the midst of the laughter, the gunshot was still audible. As the cast and the audience all turned to look at Booth, he leapt from the box to the stage. His leg got tangled in the bunting that was draped across the front of the box, and he landed badly breaking a bone in his shin. Ever the showman, Booth stood up and addressed the crowd. Eyewitnesses couldn't agree on what Booth said, but most reported that he yelled, Sic Semper Tyrannis, which is Latin for, thus always to tyrants. The lead actor, Harry Hawk, stared at John Wilkes Booth as he landed on stage. Hawk had no idea what was going on, and he thought Booth must be playing some kind of prank. While he stared, Booth slashed at Hawk with a knife. He didn't injure him, but he did rip Hawk's costume. Before anyone could process what they'd just witnessed, Booth limped out of the theater's back door and mounted his horse. Nobody chased him or tried to stop him. Booth had made a clean escape. Initially, the audience believed Booth and Lincoln were part of some kind of special performance. But after Booth ran off stage, there was shouting from the president's box. The president was hurt. He needed a doctor. 
23-year-old Dr. Charles Leal had only received his medical degree six weeks before he attended the performance of Our American Cousin. He had heard a rumor that President Lincoln would attend the show, and he bought his ticket hoping to catch a glimpse of the president. When no one else stepped forward, Leal realized he wouldn't just be seeing the president, he would be saving him. When Leal tried to open the door to the president's box, he found it tightly shut. He couldn't push it open no matter how hard he tried. Then he heard someone on the other side yelling at him to stop pushing. Leal waited while Henry Rathbone removed the jam. After a few moments, the door finally opened. Leal found Lincoln unconscious, still seated, slumped to the right. Mary Todd held him up. Two other men arrived to help Leal lift Lincoln from his seat and lay him down on the floor. Lincoln was still alive, but his pulse was faint and his breathing irregular. Leal used his bare hands to reach into the bullet wound in Lincoln's head and try to remove the bullet. At the time, doctors didn't have a modern understanding of bacteria. Leal acted according to the best medical knowledge available, but it's likely that his attempts to treat Lincoln only caused more damage. Leal was unable to remove the bullet from Lincoln's head, but he jarred loose a blood clot. Soon the president began to breathe more easily. Leal poured brandy and water into his mouth in an attempt to wake him up. Soon, two more doctors arrived. Leal consulted with them, and they determined that Lincoln was too badly injured to recover. All they could do was prepare him for death. Coming up, we'll discuss the final hours of Abraham Lincoln's life and the beginning of Secretary of War Edwin Stanton's investigation into the murder. Now, back to the story. At a little after 10 p.m. on April 14, 1865, the wounded President Abraham Lincoln was moved from Ford's Theater to the nearby Peterson boarding house. Lincoln was so tall, he didn't fit in the bed. He had to lay crosswise across it while doctors rushed around him. Lincoln's personal doctor and the Surgeon General both arrived shortly after, but the young Dr. Leal stayed by the president's side throughout the rest of the night. At 10.15 p.m., former Wisconsin Governor Leonard Farwell visited Vice President Andrew Johnson's room at the Kirkwood Hotel. Johnson was woken up by the knocking. Farwell shouted, Governor Johnson, if you are in this room, I must see you. Johnson knew that Farwell wouldn't visit him at this time of night without a good reason, so he opened the door. Farwell had come straight from Ford's theater. He relayed the news that President Lincoln had been shot. Johnson headed straight to the boarding house where Lincoln was dying. Soon after he arrived, he felt that his presence was inappropriate in the midst of the grieving family, so he returned to his hotel. He spent the night alone in his room. Shortly after the attacks on Lincoln and Secretary of State William Seward, the Secretary of War Edwin Stanton was notified. Stanton rushed to Seward's home first and checked in with the family. While three of Powell's victims were in critical condition, everyone had survived the attack, including the Secretary of State. Stanton's next stop was the Peterson boarding house where Lincoln was still unconscious. Mary Todd remained at his side, inconsolable. Her friend, Elizabeth Hobbs Keckley, would later describe how Mary filled the house with the wails of a broken heart 
the unearthly shrieks, the terrible convulsions. Stanton knew that the president was receiving the best medical care available, and there was nothing more he could do for him. Still, someone had to investigate the attacks. Stanton was perfectly situated to do just that. Stanton had little authority for the actions he took that night, but he'd won the Civil War by bypassing procedure and disregarding bureaucracy. As Secretary of War, he had been responsible for the president's security. Now that he'd failed to protect the president, he was resolved to bring Lincoln's killer to justice, even if it meant breaking legal conventions. Throughout the night, Stanton interviewed the witnesses who had been present at Ford's theater. He knew he didn't have much time. Lincoln's killer, whoever he was, had to be fleeing to the South, where it would be much more difficult for Union troops to capture him. Stanton's suspicions were right. Immediately after he shot Lincoln, Booth was on his way towards the South. His horse had a full sprint. At around 11 p.m., Booth met up with David Harold. The men replaced their horses with fresh mounts and continued their ride to Surratt's Tavern. The tavern, located at 541 H Street on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., was owned and operated by Mary Surratt. Her son, John Surratt, had helped plot Booth's numerous kidnapping attempts on President Abraham Lincoln, but he wasn't involved in the assassination. When they arrived at the tavern, Booth struggled to dismount from his horse. His broken leg was throbbing, and now that his adrenaline rush was beginning to wear off, the pain was becoming unbearable. While Booth remained with the horse, Harold stepped inside. That night, a man named John Lloyd was working at Surratt's Tavern. When Harold saw him, he said, quote, Lloyd, for God's sake, make haste and get those things, end quote. Lloyd knew exactly what those things were. Earlier, Harold and Booth had stashed guns at the tavern and briefed Lloyd about the planned assassinations. Harold took his gun, but Booth refused his. He could barely stay on his horse in his injured state, and trying to fire a gun would be impossible. Booth and Harold each had a drink. It was necessary to calm their nerves, and in Booth's case, to numb the pain in his leg. They didn't wait around at the tavern for the other conspirators. Booth needed urgent medical attention. Neither Lewis Powell nor George Atzerodt would reach Surratt's tavern that night. Atzerodt, who had never actually attempted to kill Vice President Johnson, spent the night drunkenly wandering the streets of Washington, D.C. Powell, who didn't know the way to the tavern, finally managed to make it there days later. Back at Peterson's boarding house, Lincoln remained in critical condition. Through the night, he was attended by numerous doctors, his wife and son, and various members of the U.S. government, including Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Although Dr. Leal, the first physician to tend to the injured Lincoln, had already determined that the president would not survive, he and the other doctors made a last-ditch effort. They believed that if they kept Lincoln's wound open to drain and removed the bullet from his head, he had a slim chance of recovery. Lincoln's doctors performed a rudimentary procedure that might be compared to brain surgery, but they used their bare hands and equipment that hadn't been sterilized. As the night wore on, Lincoln grew worse with every hour. Meanwhile, 
Secretary of War Stanton continued his investigation. Due to John Wilkes Booth's fame as an actor, numerous eyewitnesses identified him easily. Clerk James Tanner, who took notes on Stanton's questioning, found the evidence against Booth compelling and wrote, quote, In 15 minutes, I had testimony enough to hang John Wilkes Booth, end quote. But Stanton didn't end his investigation after 15 minutes. Determined not to make a mistake, he thoroughly questioned six witnesses over the course of an hour and a half, from midnight until 1.30 a.m. They repeatedly gave the same answer. The man who shot President Abraham Lincoln, they were certain, was John Wilkes Booth. All Stanton had to do was find him. At 3 a.m., Stanton went back to Lincoln's bedside to check in with the doctors. Mary Todd's dramatic grieving proved too great of a distraction, and Stanton kicked her out of the bedroom. Mary Todd spent the remainder of the night in the parlor. She never saw her husband alive again. While Lincoln's doctors worked, the man who'd shot him was dealing with his own medical emergency. As more time passed, John Wilkes Booth's broken leg swelled and grew more tender. He needed to cross the Potomac to the safety of the southern states before the authorities caught up with him, but horseback riding was becoming untenable. Booth knew a doctor who lived nearby, and he and Harold agreed to stop. Fearful of being turned in by the northerner, Booth glued a fake beard to his face. He'd bought the beard and glue in case he needed to disguise himself during his escape. Prop beards were designed with the understanding that theater audiences were often seated far from the stage, and the beard didn't look very convincing up close, but it was the best disguise he had. At 4 a.m. on the morning of April 15th, Dr. Samuel Mudd awoke to an injured John Wilkes Booth at his doorstep. Mudd lived between Surratt's Tavern and the Potomac River outside of the city of Washington, D.C. Booth claimed that his horse had fallen and that he'd broken his leg in the fall. Mudd didn't ask Booth for his name, and Booth didn't offer it. Although the two men had met before, Mudd didn't recognize Booth under the disguise. Mudd set Booth's leg in a splint. During the treatment, Mudd's wife noticed that Booth's fake beard was coming loose. Booth surreptitiously reached up and reapplied it. Mudd's wife mentioned what she'd seen to her husband, but he disregarded her concerns. Booth was anxious to treat his leg and then be on his way, but Mudd knew that would be impossible. The leg needed time to heal before he got back on horseback. Mudd invited Booth to stay over at his home for the night. After the long day and his broken leg, Booth was exhausted. He slept peacefully through the night. Back in Washington, D.C., Lincoln's doctors had given up. Their patient was slowly growing worse. There was nothing more they could do. By 6.40 a.m., his pulse slowed so much that the doctors almost couldn't detect it. Ten minutes later, President Lincoln stopped breathing for several moments. Just as the doctors prepared to declare him officially dead, Lincoln gasped for breath, then resumed breathing normally. He held on for another half an hour. As the morning sun rose at 7.20 a.m. on April 15, 1865, Abraham Lincoln finally died. 
Secretary of War Edwin Stanton saluted the president and said, now he belongs to the ages. In only 24 hours, the Union government had shifted from celebrating their victory to mourning their fallen leader. But they still had work to do. Lincoln's killer was still at large, and to bring him to justice, Edwin Stanton would launch one of the largest manhunts in United States history. Next week, we'll talk about the hunt for John Wilkes Booth, the tragic conclusion of his capture, and the trial against his collaborators that followed. We'll also discuss the fallout of Abraham Lincoln's death and how the world might be different if Lincoln had lived. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back on Monday with part three on John Wilkes Booth's conspiracy to kill President Abraham Lincoln, Vice President Andrew Johnson, and Secretary of State William Seward. You can find more episodes of Assassinations, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Freddie Beckley and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 